Well, good morning. Today we get to talk about the life of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul later in his journey. And we'll talk more about that uh, in just a little bit. But I wanted to bring this clay jar because, well, I'll come back to it a little bit later in the sermon. But I feel like sharing these uncut stories, it, it, it look, it's like these characters are like clay jars with cracks in them and, and, and holes in their story and, and, and scars. And, and it, I don't remember hearing these stories growing up like this. I remember clay jars that were kind of put together and they seemed perfect. And if I was going to be used by God, I had to look good as well. But the more we've looked at the chinks in these uh, characters' armor, the more we've seen that uh, God can use us sometimes through our weaknesses, through our struggles. And so we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But I want us to look at that in the life of uh, Saul as well this morning. Let's open, uh, let's, let's open with prayer as we begin our sermon this morning. Father, this morning as we tell and, and remind ourselves of the story of Saul, who became Paul, who did incredible things in your kingdom, God, remind us that we don't always start in that place. Sometimes there's some, some tough stuff in our past, God, that sometimes we think limits us in our ability in ministry, but sometimes those are the very avenues you work to, to find a place for us to, to show your glory. So this morning, God, if we come in in a place of any doubt about being used by you, I pray we would leave today and with more certainty, not about ourselves, but about how you work uh, your masterpiece in us. This morning, God, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ should be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, Acts chapter 9 is a huge turning point in the life of Saul. It's a story that was read a moment ago about a bright light encounter that Jesus has uh, with Paul, or Saul at that time. And I remember hearing this story and thinking, that's great, you know, all of this must have come together well, and this is the turning point, and boy, I wish I had a story like Saul. And yet, I begin to open the story and realize maybe I don't want a story quite like Saul's. If you look back in the, the life of Saul, he begins in a very faithful place. He's a, a Jewish person who's trying to follow God as faithfully as he possibly can. And I think it's important for us to understand Saul's background, for us to understand the transformation that happens in his life. And so I want us to begin in the first place Scripture introduces us to Saul. And that happens in Acts chapter 7. Now when we read this passage in Acts chapter 7, Jesus has already died, he's been buried, he's been resurrected. He spent some time amongst uh, some people to show himself with his scars and all. And it's, eventually he goes and ascends to heaven to be and sit beside the Father there. So the disciples are left behind and the church is growing and there's persecution. And the first person who dies because of their faith is a guy named Stephen. And that's where we first read of the story of Saul. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except uh, the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, it's important to know this background because here is Saul, and he's persecuting the early church. The first time we read his, his name, it's not like this is some hero in Scripture. This is actually a guy who's trying to defeat the way of Jesus. 
But we've got to understand that he's not doing this because he's interested in being a murderer or something like that. He's some violent person just for its own sense. He has a background to this, and it's important that we understand that background. And he testifies later in the book of Acts about his history. In fact, Acts 22 is where I want to read this morning, where he talks about his past before this. It lets us know a little bit of insight into his story. Acts 22, beginning in verse 1. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priests and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Saul grew up in a great family a family of followers of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, and he was very zealous for his way of life. He tried to follow and obey God as well as he possibly could. He's even picked to go to Jerusalem and study under a master rabbi, a guy named Gamaliel. And in the first century, Gamaliel is a big deal. He's, a, he's an important rabbi during this time. So to be selected by Gamaliel was huge for Saul. So he goes off and he studies under Gamaliel and he follows the law and he learns all of the Bible, probably some other things that were written by followers of God at that time as well. And then we come to this place where he ends up approving of the death of Stephen. And part of us wonders, why is he doing this? But it's clear why he's doing this. He's trying to follow God's law. Now this not, may not have been a passage you memorized growing up, but this is one that Saul would have memorized growing up. And it comes from Deuteronomy in the 17th chapter, this is what Moses left for the people, part of the law of God. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 2. Again, one of the passages that, that Saul would have grown up knowing. It says there, If a man or woman living among you is in one of the towns of the Lord, gives you, uh, gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars, in the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true, and if it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. So in Acts chapter 7, Saul is doing what he thinks the law of God commands for him to do. He's trying to follow faithfully, trying to be zealous, trying to follow the teaching that he had received growing up. But God disrupts all of this in Acts chapter 9. And I want to read in verse 1. This is the transformation of Saul, the beginning point of when he changes. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, but this is what happens. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
So this is the story that was read a moment ago, this bright light, and I'm sure words can't quite describe the experience that Saul has in this moment. But it's interesting, the language of the text there. It says that he didn't know who it was. Who are you? But he says, who are you, Lord? As if he knows this voice, but it's coming in a new sense, and it's Jesus, the very one that he's been persecuting the people for following. So there's this confrontation. He's blinded. And in this moment, Saul is transformed. Now, instead of going and trying to persecute those who are following the way of Jesus, now he becomes a spokesman for the way of Jesus. One of the most incredible transformations we see in Scripture. It's a fascinating story. But I want us to look at this from a couple of perspectives this morning. First, I want us to look at this from the perspective of Saul. Again, Saul is this person who grew up trying to be faithful to God. He's, he's grown up trying to follow the law of God. He's, even when he's steving, sto, st, steving stoning, that's not right, stoning Stephen. Even when he's stoning Stephen, he thinks he's following God's law. This is the way he's grown up. And some of you grew up in different ways than you're following today. And you thought what was to be faithful is different than what you're struggling with today. And I, I just want you to think from Saul's perspective. What would it take for Saul to finally get to this place where he'd grown up believing this was true, that God was who he said he was, the old covenant, and then he has this experience that transforms him to become a new person to believe a new way, to preach Jesus as Lord. What would it take? And I'm thinking in our own lives about this, that we go through experiences like this, don't we? Where we grow up thinking a certain way about things, and over time God begins to do a transformation, a work in our lives, and we feel ourselves being drawn to a more open or a different way than what we had before. So in your life, this may not just be spiritually. It may be in your own life in different ways. For instance, some of you have grown up and you had a a track for your life and what your career was going to be, what your job was going to be, and you were set on that path. You studied from the beginning to do this one thing. But over time, what what happens, right? Sometimes you sense a calling out of that thing that you had prepared yourself to do. And it's kind of scary to step into this new territory because you're leaving behind something that's sure and you're stepping into something that you feel a calling to. You feel like you're being moved toward in some way, but but it's different than what you knew before. There's a challenge to stepping over that boundary line. What would it take for you to to, to spend all your time here and then be moved to here? Or how about this? Some of you have been through an experience in relationships where you thought maybe you were being called to, to, to step into a relationship with someone, to be married to someone. Or maybe you were married to someone, or maybe you're married right now, and you came into some new information from someone that says you won't believe what your spouse has been doing. He or she's been cheating on you. And you're in this experience where this is the way it's been, and it's so comfortable. And to take in this new information, it's almost impossible to believe because you feel like you've got this relationship that's strong. And the question is, are you going to deny this new information and believe what you've known before, or are you going to step into tune with reality and begin to deal with the problems that are there or the struggles? And it's tough to leave this because you've known this, but if this is the reality, then you've got to step across that boundary and deal with this. Or maybe it it could be any number of things in your life that you come from this, you you grew up understanding God this way, and to step across means you're going to lose, well, your family's going to be praying for you because they don't think you're saved if you step across this line. But you realize God is prompting you to freedom and to new things, and it's different than what you knew, and, and Saul's dealing with this. Saul's known this all of his life, but he has this encounter with Jesus. And the question is, is he going to be willing to leave what he knew, what was so comfortable, what was so clear? Scripture said it, and now he has an encounter with Jesus. And he's got that question. Let's move away from Saul for a moment. Let's think from a different perspective. Let's think about the Christians in Damascus that he's going to persecute. So think about yourself. You're a Christian in Damascus. 
You've heard about Stephen being stoned in the sky, looking with approval, holding the coats named Saul. And you're in the church and you hear uh, that this Saul character is coming to make sure and persecute you and throw some of you in jail. And you know he's serious about it because you've got friends and relatives who may have been killed or put in prison by him before. So you, you've known Saul a certain way, but as he comes into the city, you're hearing a story about Saul now proclaiming Jesus as Lord. My question to you before was, what would it take for you to make this step from this to this? But now my question is, what would it take for you to trust that God had transformed someone who was out to get you at one point to now being someone who's going to be the greatest spokesman for this new way of life of anyone else in the movement? What would it take for us to believe this? I think about this, and I was thinking in our own context, what would be the closest example? Saul's a religious terrorist, right? He believes what, he's, what he believes, and he believes he's supposed to do away with people who don't agree with it. So the, Saul comes to this place where he's being transformed, but the question is, are these people in Damascus going to receive him? And I'm thinking about in our own day, we have examples of, of, of stories about ISIS that are going on in the Middle East. And we need to be in prayer daily about this to make sure that God hears our prayers, that he would step in and intervene in this violence that's happening against Christians that we sometimes don't speak up about. We need to be open about that. We need to be praying about that. We need to be clear that this is what we're about, is about the being people of peace and not about this, right? But I'm thinking more seriously. I don't know any face that goes along with ISIS, but I remember one face that was clear a few years ago before he passed away. And I, I, I can't get out of my mind this comparison between Saul and Osama bin Laden. Religious terrorists who believed a certain way of life that wanted to do away with everyone who believes something different. And my question is, if, if you, we knew a few years ago that Osama bin Laden was coming to Allen, Texas, what would it take for us to believe that he had undergone such a transformation that now he's going to be a believer and is going to speak for Jesus. What would it take for us to include him in our community when some of our friends and neighbors have died at his hands? I don't know there's anything that could be done that would force me to believe that, short of God coming to me and saying, this guy's safe. And that's the challenge that's going on in Damascus. What does it look like for this guy who's come out to kill us to now accept us? Look at what the response is as we read on. It's in Acts chapter 9 in verse uh, 20, I believe. Acts 9, verse 20. So at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him into a basket through an opening in the wall. So he goes to Damascus. He's had this transformation, but that doesn't mean the community is going to accept him now. And they're out to kill him, and he gets whisked away by night just to make sure this, that this doesn't happen. Well, let's read on as he goes to Jerusalem. What happens next? Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And, I, and you would be too, right? Not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the uh, apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So St Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
not exactly the best reception from the Christian community, right? We call ourselves people of grace, but when it comes to specific individuals like this, I find it real hard to forgive, don't you? Someone in my own family who's betrayed or something like that. A friend that's, that's talked behind my back. I mean, we have experiences in our lives, and this is well beyond whatever I've experienced. So he's not received in, in any place he can go. And I don't remember this story. I remember Saul getting the bright light experience and then writing half the New Testament. My question is, in our own churches, if this happened, I mean, 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament are written by this religious terrorist that we might have rejected if he'd come to our doors as well. And this is a challenge because we have people in our lives we don't want to accept in or accept that they can be changed. But the power of the gospel says that anyone can come. If their life is going to be transformed, they can be forgiven of their sin and included in the community of faith. And this is why this has been so important for us to tell stories and testimonies in our own church about our brokenness. Because this needs to be a place where people can bring their their stuff from the past and say, yes, I've been involved in this, but Jesus is transforming my life and I need help on this journey. Would you help me? And our response every time needs to be, yes, we want to point you to Jesus and we need your story so we're reminded of the grace of God in our own lives. Stories like Steve Roseberry shared earlier in this series or or Sharon Jones or or Kristen Mazza. And today we've got one more of those stories that I want us to show uh, in a testimony. Shirley Marble was willing to to film her story. And I want to show that right now, if you'll roll that video. Well over a decade ago, our small group leader, Tim Ulrey, asked, as a child, who was God to you? I'd never considered who God was to me as a child. But I instinctively knew my answer as soon as I heard the question. I just didn't know how I was going to answer it without crying. With sadness and gratitude, I explained for the first time to a group of people I barely knew that as a child, God was my deliverer. One Sunday morning at the age of 12, I declared my belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and was baptized for the remission of my sins. What an amazing moment. I'm sure time stopped. The earth quit rotating. The angels clapped and God smiled. I came up out of that water, a new creature, crystal clean, pure as the driven snow. Twelve years of riotous living was gone. The air was cleaner and I was spotless. I smiled on the outside and giggled on the inside. My life was perfect. I was finally perfect. The name, my name was engraved on the palm of his hand and my name was written in the Lamb's Book of As an adolescent and new babe in Christ, my new hope included a mistaken belief that this marvelous moment of faith would somehow miraculously heal my wounded family. But my hope was short-lived. My father had stayed home that Sunday, and arriving at home enthralled and joyous with what I had done, with what Jesus had done, I couldn't contain my joy. Mama said to me, why don't you go tell your daddy what you did this morning? So I went running into the bedroom, jumped on the bed with him and said, Daddy, you will never believe what I did this morning. I was baptized and I will never, as long as I live, forget the words he said. He said, that's wonderful. I'm proud of you. Your mother and I are getting a divorce. Like a sledgehammer, 
Striking an anvil, Daddy's words had crushed my small heart. In 1971, divorce only happened in Hollywood to Elizabeth Taylor. Divorce was scorned and despised in the community in general, much less in a church pew. I was only 12 and I knew this. How could they not know? I couldn't stomach the thought that the whole world was going to know that my parents were getting a divorce. And the sad truth is, had I only known then what I know now, I would have embraced and prayed for divorce because divorce would have saved my mother's life. Although my faith was young, there was an absolute strength in it that I believe even now was beyond my years. Somehow I knew that the peace I craved only came from God the Father. I knew that he loved me and he was with me. I knew that God was my strength and he alone would deliver me. My faith then, like now, was vital to my survival. Less than one month after my baptism, my mother took something precious from me. She took away something irreplaceable. She took away her love, her protection, her special aroma, her tender touch. She took away my privilege of having a mother. She took her life. My childhood memories are filled with fear. The ensuing years have been filled with prayer, for peace. But instead of peace, God gave me the only man who had stamina enough and loved me enough to take every step with me. Except for the love of Danny and our son Derek, trauma seems to have trumped peace year after year. In the early years of adulthood, God began to loudly express on my heart that he was calling me to tell his story of my life. The telling would reveal him and his great love for his children. God and I have a pact. My virtual contract assures him that I will never turn down an invitation to speak of his love. His virtual contract assures me that my pain has always had a purpose. And as long as I will be vulnerable and share it, he will always use it to convey the truth of his unfailing love, endurance, and presence. It is his desire, and I participate in the ongoing work of convincing myself and others that despite our hardships, despite our perception of who or where God is, despite our impression of the Father, he wants us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt he is with us. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in us. He quiets us with his love. He rejoices over us with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 I've personalized for myself 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts me and all my troubles so that I can comfort you with the comfort I have received from God. Though we have only one child, we raised two. My brother Danny moved in with us when he was 12 years old and lived with us until he went into the Army. When Derek was eight, I was diagnosed with cancer and received treatment over a three-year period of time. I had surgery twice and radiation once. I expected to die before Derek was 12. That was 25 years ago. 
Turning 33 meant surpassing my mother in age and ushered in my first diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and depression. My father and I have been estranged for 40 years. My constant enemy is anything that pushes my abandonment button. Like Derek's enlistment one year before 9-11 and subsequent deployments to Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Japan, and Afghanistan again. Due to Derek's last deployment, our daughter-in-law and two-year-old grandson moved back to Japan just in time for the largest earthquake and tsunami to ever be recorded. We were seemingly helpless. That was March 11, 2010. These are a few of the things that have fractured the clay pot my soul resides in and about which I'm privileged to share. Like Paul, I continue to learn that his grace is sufficient for me, for his powers made perfect in my weakness. As a child, God was my deliverer. As an adult, he is El Roy, the one who sees me. There is a passage in Job that captivates me and around which beautiful lyrics have been written. Though you slay me, I will trust I appreciate so much Shirley's willingness to share that story. But I appreciate more a church that was willing to hear those stories and to say, this doesn't discount you from ministry, but said, we accept you here and we want you to engage in ministry and tell your story over and over again. And that's true for so many of us. And this is why it was so important for this to be the first series I preached is because I wanted us as a church to know that God's grace is not dependent on your perfection. It's the perfection of Jesus his son that gives us perfection and assures us of salvation. So this is not about climbing a rope and becoming perfect. That happens after we give our lives over to God. We become more perfected in the image of Jesus as the spirit works in us. But we can never hide the scars that we've had in the past. Which brings me back to this clay jar. There's this passage, in fact, I want to read first. It comes from 2 Corinthians 4. In fact, if you pull that up on the screen right now, James. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 9. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I love this image that, that Paul, Paul gives. He says, I'm like a clay jar. I'm not perfect, right? I mean, clay jars, there, there are some that might be, you know, not have any holes in them, I guess. Not like this one, but... But the truth is, in Paul's story, he had all kinds of holes and scars and weaknesses. And so often in church, what we do is we feel like we've got to perfect the outside facade and feel like a, a part of our required dress code is a mask. We don't want that to be this kind of church, do we? We want this to be a place where we can be honest about our past, to be honest about the problems we've had. Because when you cover up the, the problems you've had in the past, when you cover up and try to fix those holes that you've had because of sins and problems in the past, what you're doing, as the passage in Second Corinthians 4 says, is you're keeping his message from being seen. 
Because God puts his message inside of us. We're just clay jars. We're broken and fractured. And and if you cover those things up, then there's nothing there to see. It's not God's message inside of us. But the image before that, the image before that is of a light. If you look at the passage in verse 6, that God's message is a light inside of us. So if we cover it up, that light can't be seen. But if we realize that those scars are in there, then those cracks are the very way that God's message is shown to the world. And this is what we do is we, we try to patch these things up when those scars and those things, those are actually the very ways his light shines out and his message is shown to the world. And it's going to look different depending on the holes in our, our, our past. It's going to be, look different based on the scars and weaknesses and stories we have in our past. But if we cover those up and fix them and act like everything's okay, then God's message can't be seen in the clay jars that we are. And I love that image, and I think that's more what we want to become as a church, Amen is that these testimonies and stories we tell, it's funny. I mean, when you look at Jesus' resurrected body, his scars are still there, aren't they? And I think those scars are there because uh, scars are like, are like tattoos with stories, aren't they? Like if you have a scar on your body, you have a story about something that hurt at some point. I have a scar over my head, and I can tell you that's where I've got a scar on my chin from some stitches I got then. And those stories, they stay with me, and I'm able to tell those stories to my kids. And when it comes to our life of faith, we've got scars on our body that we need to keep alive as well as stories of God's faithfulness. So may we continue to tell our stories like Kristen has and like Steve has and like Sharon has and like Shirley has, that we are all broken, but the good news of the gospel is those very broken pieces are the ways that God's light shines out. Look, God has given you tremendous gifts in this body. There's so many gifts around this church. If we were to know them, it would be incredible to see the impact. But some of God's greatest gifts and the greatest ways he works is not just through the, the, the gifts that we've been given or the abilities we have, It's through the sins and the struggles and the addictions of our past that God has healed and he has mended. And now we're able to minister to others who are walking down those same roads that we went down before. I dream of the day where I walk into this building. And it can't happen in the first year with you all. But as I get to know your stories more and more, that we get to tell testimonies all the time in this church. And when someone walks in off the street and they say, you know, I'm struggling with this. And they're able to admit that. That I get to say, you know who you need to talk to? You need to talk to this person right here because their story is going to line right with yours and they're going to walk with you through that. And if we don't tell our stories, we'll never know where to send those people. But if we become a church that shares those stories with one another, then we know exactly where to send people when they come in these doors. And the good news is it doesn't just have to happen in here. We take those scars with us into the world and share that good news with the world. Amen? So may we become that kind of church that doesn't hide things and feel like we've got to say everything's okay. May we admit we're broken people, but it's through that very brokenness that God's light and his message shine through us as clay jars. Uh, Be standing now as we close out with a benediction. Let me send us out from this series. May you never forget that the struggles you've had, the sins that have entangled you, the, 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 the hurts and hang-ups and habits you've had in the past, that those very things are the ways that God's light will show out to show the world the good news of Jesus Christ. So may we not cover them up. May we find healing from those scars, of course. But may he send us out to be his good news in the world, to shine his light even through the broken places. May we love God and love people and serve others. Go in peace.